Leviticus chapter 24. We're going to finish the book of Leviticus tonight. So we're just going to have to get on our high horse and get moving fast and quick through this tonight. So Leviticus chapter 24. How many NASCAR fans? Don't be ashamed to admit it. How many NASCAR fans? Great. Perhaps the greatest NASCAR goof of all time occurred in the 1985 Daytona 500. One of the contenders that February was the legendary driver, Donnie Allison. And Allison was off to a good start. He was moving well. And yet, just two laps into the race, the first turn of the third lap, something went wrong. And on lap three, Allison's car stalled and he rolled off the track into the infield and it didn't take long to discover the problem. No one in Allison's crew had bothered to fill the car with gas. Hey, Donnie Allison was driving an experienced, seasoned, successful driver. He was driving a car with $250,000, I mean a quarter of a million dollars of precision and preparation, but the Allison crew made a major omission. They tried to race without fuel. And this is the mistake that many churches make today. When we enter the race that God has set before us, we also need the fuel of the Holy Spirit. This was God's concern for the Old Testament priests. And in chapter 4, he addresses the fuel. 24, he addresses the fuel for their ministry. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make the lamps burn continually. You remember there were no electric lights in the tabernacle. The only light was the glory of God behind the veil and the golden menorah, that seven-branch lampstand that sat outside the veil in what was called the holy place. The priests performed their duties under the light of this menorah, but it had to be fueled. And only the purest oil went into it from pressed olives. Only the purest oil was used. It's interesting. In Zechariah chapter 4, the prophet there sees this same menorah. And he recognizes in his vision that it's being supernaturally supplied with oil. In his vision, the menorah represents Israel. And God is showing Zechariah that he alone, the Holy Spirit, is going to fuel the work that God wants to do through his people. This is why Zechariah 4 verse 6 states, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. Hey, whenever we attempt to work for God, whenever there is an obstacle or a mountain in our way that needs to be moved, we need to rely upon the purest oil to fuel the project. Anything we do in this relief effort needs to be done in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Let's not rely in our own human genius or our ingenuity or our muscle or might. Let's rely the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's not embark on a race without our car being filled with gas. Well, verse 3, outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting, this was where the menorah sat in the holy place outside the veil that led into the holy of holies. Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations 
He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. And you shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it. Two-tenths of an ephah, or about a fifth of a bushel, shall be in each cake. And here is another source of fuel. You see, oil supplied the light for the priest to work, while the bread supplied the priests with strength and with sustenance. He says, you shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord, and you shall put frankincense on each row, that it may be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Also in the holy place was this table called the table of showbread. The word showbread means bread of presence. And the showbread reminded Israel that God was their source, that He was their strength. He lighted their way, but He also strengthened their steps. And the bread consisted of two rows, six loaves each, twelve in all, one loaf for each of the twelve tribes of Israel. God was saying, all Israel needs to be dependent upon me for fuel, for light, and for bread and strength. He says, every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. You see, the showbread set on the table for about a week, and then it was eaten by the priests in the tabernacle, which brings up an interesting story. You find it in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David and his men were running from Saul, and they had become hungry. And they entered into the tabernacle and they asked the high priest Ahimelech if they had any bread. He said, well, no, we have no common bread. The pantry was bare. But David was given the showbread. He said, we do have the showbread. And David and his men ate this bread in a clear violation of the law of Moses. For who's supposed to eat this bread? Just the priest, Aaron and his sons. Not David. David was from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. Now what's interesting is that years later, rather than condemn David, Jesus, our Lord, actually used David's action to teach the legalistic Pharisees a lesson. He told them that when David's posse scarfed up the showbread, it obviously proved that God is more into human need than religious ritual. Whenever human need and religious ritual go side by side, the human need always trumps ceremony and observance. Never forget that. You know, if your ox is in a ditch and you've got a lot of problems going on and you need to miss church once in a while, miss church. God doesn't get mad at that. Human need always trumps religious ritual. Just get the tape the next week. God is far more into compassion than He is tradition. He'd rather feed the hungry than observe formality. Never forget that about God. Well, in verses 10 through 16, Moses runs into a situation that's not covered by the letter of the law. A man blasphemes God's holy name. 
What's the appropriate penalty for blasphemy? Well, now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel. And this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shilometh, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. Two men were scrapping. They had gotten into a little fisticuffs. We're not told why. Perhaps one guy was a Bulldog fan and the other guy was a Tech fan, for all we know. They may have been hockey players. Perhaps this was Rocky and Apollo. I don't know. But while they were flailing at each other, one of the men loses his cool and he busts out with a blasphemy. The Hebrew cops arrest him. They book him on blasphemy. And now it's up to Moses to decide what's next. Now understand, prior to this event, the penalty for blasphemy had not been revealed to Moses. Obviously it was wrong, but how was it to be punished? And I'm sure the first thing Moses did was he went to the scrolls and to the tablets. He went to check the law to see if God said anything in his law about this man's sentence. I believe that if the penalty for blasphemy had been carved by the finger of God into stone tablets like those Ten Commandments, Moses' decision would have been a snap. It would have been a piece of cake, no problem. Just consult the tablets. There's your answer. Moses would have gone with that. You know, the same would have been true if Moses possessed our Bibles. For as far as I'm concerned, the words written in this book are also written in stone. They are sure. They are certain. And that's why if there is a question that is answered in your Bible, the will of God is clear. What does the Bible say? Don't expect the Lord to speak any further if He's already told us in His Word. Guys, don't tell me the Holy Spirit's leading you to marry an unbeliever. The Bible says He's not. Don't tell me that God has told you that it's okay for you to shack up with your girlfriend. The Bible says it's wrong. Don't say God has called you to be a homosexual. Or it's okay with Jesus if you don't pay your taxes. Or God has made a special exception for you to divorce your spouse. Hey, it is crystal clear from the Word of God. The Scripture says just the opposite. The Holy Spirit penned this book. And thus the Holy Spirit is never going to contradict Himself. You understand that? Good. But here's what Moses faces. This is an issue that's not really covered in the Word of God. So what do you do? I mean, how do you make decisions on issues not actually spelled out in Scripture? Hey, of the 123,718,000 women in America, how did I know that Kathy was the right one for me? Of the 23,000 occupations available to a person, how did I know God was calling me to be a pastor? Of the 5,000 universities across the country, how did I know that God wanted me to attend the one here in Atlanta? Of the 50 states to live in and of the 159 counties in Georgia, how did I know where to live? In a decision that is not directly decided on in Scripture, how do we discern God's will? Well, here's what we learn from Moses. 
When an issue is not covered in the word of God, then it's up to us to seek the mind of God. And notice how Moses does it. Very clear. First, you might want to write these down. He desires to know. You know, some people don't even desire to know. They just run out and they act on whatever they think God's will might be. Obviously, Moses put everything on hold. He desired to know what God had to say. Second, he delays to know. And this, too, is where we make a mistake. We get in a hurry. We start to rush. Moses, rather, gives it time. He delays to know. And third, he depends to know. He trusts in God's ability to speak more than in his ability to hear. This set me free when it came to discerning God's will. I used to trust in my ability to hear. And I'm pretty deaf at times. But now I trust in God's ability to speak. Because God is faithful. And God will get me the message if I truly desire it and truly want to learn. So the three things he does, he desires to know. He delays to know. He depends on God to know. It was said of George Washington Carver that he got his knowledge of the peanut from the Bible. But here's how he explained it. The Bible teaches nothing about the peanut. But it told me about God, and God told me about the peanut. Hey, as believers, we have the mind of Christ. And when it's not spelled out in the Word of God, we need to seek the mind of God. It's just a matter of tuning into His wisdom. Well, verse 13 And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take outside the camp him who has cursed. Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Obviously, God was serious about the punishment for blasphemy. And notice, this punishment served as an example to the others. That's why they were all to lay their hands on his head, those who heard him, and then everyone was to pick up rocks and stone him. Hey, God believed in deterrence. Apparently, he believed that capital punishment was a deterrent. People say, well, I don't believe that. Well, it's a deterrent for the person you're stoning. God was serious about revering his name, acknowledging his holiness. And so the penalty for this man was stoning. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Hey, tomorrow, when you hear somebody take the Lord's name in vain, you're going to cringe. They don't know what they're doing, do they? God is serious about this. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Blasphemy deserved the death penalty. Hey, anything that undermines our reverence for God should be dealt with radically. And that is still true today. Eventually, the loss of reverence leads to a collapse of morals. Hey, the... Reverence we give to God and to the name of God and to sacred things is what is the foundation, the underpinnings of our society. And today, God still, even in this age of grace, He still wants to eliminate the blasphemer. But no longer by stoning, now by saving him. That's how God wants to eliminate blasphemy today. Remember, we have a greater power than Moses. 
armed with the gospel of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, we have the power to help change people's lives. We have the power to get rid of blasphemers by turning them into worshipers. So don't hate the blasphemer. Love him and share with him the good news of Jesus. Verse 17 tells us, Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. Animal for animal. Notice, kill a human and you're put to death. Humans are sacred. To kill a human being is to mar the image of God. We reflect God's image. But an animal is a piece of property. And if you kill someone's animal, the penalty is to replace that animal. Verse 19. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. This is called the law of tit for tat. A person's punishment shall be always equal to the person's crime. And I want you to understand, this is not the human tendency. For our tendency is not punishment commiserable to the crime. Our natural tendency is one-upmanship. Punch me in the eye, and I'm not just going to want to punch you in the eye. I'm going to want to also bloody your lip. We always want to get back a little bit stronger than was given to us. And, And this is actually a merciful thing. Temper your judgment with mercy is what he's saying. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. And whether or not the man's name was Rocky before the incident, it was afterwards. Last week, we talked about the seven annual feasts on God's calendar. And do you remember what they were? Passover. The second was unleavened bread. The third was the Feast of First Fruits. The fourth was the Feast of Pentecost, or Weeks. The fifth was the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah. The sixth was the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. And who was the famous baseball pitcher who refused to pitch the first game of the World Series on Yom Kippur? My favorite baseball player of all time? Sandy Koufax. You guys are learning, man. And then lastly, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, two more feasts are discussed in chapter 25. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. Now just as there was a Sabbath day, there was also a Sabbath year. One year out of seven, the people were required to allow the land to rest. The ground was not to be farmed in the seventh year. You know, it's interesting that modern agricultural techniques have now verified the wisdom of this law. We've discovered today that when the ground lies dormant, 
it restores and it revives its mineral content. Fail to let the land rest and you rob it, you rape it of its nutrients. Today, agriculturists advise crop rotation to give the land an opportunity to rejuvenate itself. This all, we could have learned that from God if we'd just been reading Leviticus. You know, it's also interesting that the Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain Church staff have been bucking for this for years. You know, it just goes to show you. First you start giving them one day off in seven, and now they want to take a year off every seven years. But... No, I'm just kidding. Verse 4. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your unintended, your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for you, your male and female servants, your hired man and the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. Now, this all sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? Hey, let's take every seventh year off. How many of you would go for that? Every seven years you just take the year off? Yeah. That would be easy for the first five years. But then in that sixth year, toward the end of that year, when you haven't sowed any seed and there's nothing coming up, and you're starting to scratch your head and you're starting to say, Lord, what are we going to eat next year? It'd be a little tougher, let me tell you. And it'd be a little tougher because you'd have to have faith and you'd have to trust God. So where are they going to get the produce to eat in this year that they're going to take off? We're going to find out in verse 18. But first, God sets out another special Sabbath known as the year of Jubilee. This was a Sabbath of seven-year periods. After seven, seven-year segments came the year of Jubilee. It came in the 50th year. And verse 8 tells us about it. You should count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, and the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. In fact, the word jubilee means blast of a horn. A trumpet sounded the year of jubilee. Verse 10. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his possession. And each of you shall return to his family. Now understand the concept of a year of jubilee is unparalleled in history. This was a uniquely Jewish invention, but it was definitely ingenious. And verse 10 describes its chief feature. Each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. In other words, all debts will be paid, and all properties will be returned in the year of jubilee. Well, verse 11 tells us more. That 50th year shall be a jubilee to you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, 
you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy from your neighbor. And according to the number of years of crops, he shall sell to you. According to the multitude of years, you shall increase its price. And according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish its price. For he sells to you according to the number of the years of the crops. Therefore, you shall not oppress one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. All the prices, all the price of land was all based on the fact that it would be returning to its original owner in the 50th year. Now, when Israel entered into the land of promise, God parceled out territories to each of the 12 tribes. You see, the land belonged to God, but he loaned it to each of the families in Israel. And of course, from time to time, land was bought or sold. When it was put up for collateral on a loan, and a man couldn't pay his debts, that land would be lost. But the loss was never permanent. For in the year of Jubilee, all of the land was returned to its original occupant. And this is why whenever a land transaction came down, its value was determined by the number of years left to the year of Jubilee. Another practice in ancient Israel was that of slavery. And of course, people today think of slavery as cruel, but not among the Hebrews. When a person couldn't pay their debts, instead of filing bankruptcy, what they would do is work off their debt by becoming a slave to the creditor. But in the year of Jubilee, all the debts were canceled and the slaves became free again. Now think of the practical impact of this law. Most people would live at least once in their lifetime through a year of jubilee. In that year, their debts would be canceled. Sounding good to you? They'd get a second chance on life. If family land had been lost for some reason, perhaps through a relative slothfulness, they could get it back and they could start over. Hey, you golfers will understand, the year of jubilee was a mulligan on life. You got a second chance. And it's really, it was fair. It didn't hinder the industrious man from bettering his position through hard work, but it did provide a way for some people to get out of certain inequities and address a few cruelties and restore to everyone real opportunity. It was a wonderful idea. And as clever a welfare system as the year of Jubilee, its real significance, I believe, is prophetic. Or think about it for a moment. The original and ultimate owner of this world is who? Who created it? God, you're right. But God gave dominion over the earth to man. And in turn, what did we do? We bungled it in sin and lost it to Satan. In fact, three times in John's gospel, Satan is referred to as the ruler of this world. But one day, God will declare a year of jubilee. And the land will revert back to its original owner. Today, Satan may be in control of this earth. He may be able to stir up hurricanes and so forth. But it doesn't belong to him. When Jesus returns, Satan will be evicted. And the world will return to its rightful owner. When Jesus returns, all debts will be canceled. The slaves will be set free. And all property will be returned to its original ownership. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And in a spiritual sense, you and I are living in a year of jubilee. 
For Jesus has done this for us right now. Our debts have been canceled. We've been set free. And all our lives now belong. They've gone back to their original owner, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now let me bring up one other aspect about God's calendar. Have you noticed that it's full of sevens? Have you noticed that? The seventh day, the seventh year, the year after the seventh seven. You remember there are even periods of seven times 70 years. Remember in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's famous vision, his 70 weeks, is a period of 7 times 70. In fact, the Hebrews were in captivity in Babylon for a period of 490 years or 70 times 7. It lasted 70 years because the Hebrews had neglected to observe the Sabbath year 70 straight times. That's why they were punished 490 years. Well, what I'm about to delve into tonight is a little conjecture, but... A lot of what I delve into is a little conjecture. But what if we were to take this one more step? Seven days, seven years, 70 times seven. What about seven times 1,000 years? What about seven millenniums? Well, based on the assumption that Adam and Eve were created 6,000 years ago, we are now coming to the end of history's sixth millennium. From Adam to Abraham was, oh, about 2,000 years. From Abraham to Jesus was another 2,000 years. And from Jesus until today has been about 2,000 years, a total of 6,000 years. Now, you remember in Revelation, the Bible tells us that there's one final 1,000-year period in the history of planet Earth. Revelation 20 teaches us that Jesus will return to this earth and He will reign and rule over it for a thousand years. We call it the Millennial Kingdom. Now if God chooses to fulfill His plans for this planet in seven millenniums, then Jesus' final millennium, His Millennial Kingdom, would be the seventh. Now, Now think about this. According to the Jewish calendar, This year is year 5,765. According to our calendar, it's 2,005. So nobody really knows the exact day of creation. But all the calendars do indicate that we are getting close to the end of the sixth millennium. Now, if all history is seven millenniums, we've got one millennium left. And that's the millennium that Jesus Christ is going to reign and rule over this planet. That means we are getting close to the end of the day of man and the beginning of the day of the Lord. Are you following me? Here's the bottom line. Jesus is coming back soon. That's what I believe. And understand, this is not just kind of wild messianic fever. It was believed by many Christians as far back as the early church. Irenaeus, who lived in the year 150 A.D., he wrote this, For the day of the Lord is as a thousand years, and in six days created things were complete. It is evident, therefore, that they will come to an end at the 6,000 years. And we are right on the doorstep even today. Well, verses 18 through 22 answer that question that I I had you thinking about earlier that the Jews, I'm sure, were asking, if we're going to let the land rest, 
in the seventh year, then how in the world are we going to eat? Well, he tells them in verse 18. So you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them. And you shall dwell in the land in safety. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce? Then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring forth produce enough for three years. And you shall sow in the eighth year and eat old produce until the ninth year, until its produce comes in, you shall eat of the old harvest. In other words, in the sixth year, God promised a harvest that would be enough for the next two years. You see, here was the hurdle that you had to get over to observe this Sabbath year. You know, can God do more in six days than I can do in seven days? You know, this is the hurdle we have to get over in keeping a Sabbath day. We think that, oh, we've got to work seven days a week. And we don't think that God can do in six what we can do in seven. That's the bottom line. And that's why we don't give Him the seventh day. This is also the problem in tithing. This is why some of you don't tithe. you got little bitty faith. That's why you don't tithe. Because you still believe that you can do more with your 100% than God can do with 90%. If you just honor Him with that 10%. I'm sorry, but I don't have that much confidence in myself. I have no doubt that if I'll honor God with my 10% and give Him my 90, He can do far more with 90 than I can do with 100. I believe that. The question is, how strong is your faith? How much do you really trust the Lord with your time and with your money? Well, the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land, If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. We're going to talk a lot more about this when we get to the book of Ruth, this whole notion of the kinsman redeemer. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. There was a right of redemption throughout all Israel. And if you foreclosed on the property, the owner always had the right to buy it back once he had accumulated the funds to do so. But if he is not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. goes back to him then. And in the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his possession. Now, there was one exception to this law of redemption. If a man sells a house in a walled city, then he may redeem it within the whole year after it is sold. Within a full year, he may redeem it. But if it is not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong permanently to him who bought it, Throughout his generations, it shall not be released in the Jubilee. And why that was the case, 
I'm really not sure. In a sense, though, we all live in a walled city. We all have to deal with our limitations, don't we? And you know what our greatest limitation is? We don't have forever to be redeemed from our sin. It's time. God's offer of salvation is limited. That's our greatest limitation. We don't have forever to be redeemed. That's why Jesus wants to buy us back from our sin right now, today. The offer isn't forever. And so we are in a sense like a house in a walled city. And we don't have forever to be redeemed. It's best that you take advantage of Jesus' offer today. However, the houses of villages which have no wall around them shall be counted as the fields of the country. They may be redeemed and they shall be released in the Jubilee. Nevertheless, the cities of the Levites and the houses and the cities of their possession, the Levites may redeem at any time. And if a man purchases a house from the Levites, then the house that was sold in the city of his possession shall be released in the, in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the children of Israel. You know, the Levites were the one tribe that inherited no land. Their inheritance was the Lord. They served as priests. And thus, even if there was a house in a walled city, you know, it could be redeemed at any time except for these Levites. They, you know, you read their regulations here. He says, but the field of the common land of their cities may not be sold, for it is their perpetual possession. Now, chapter 25 Verses 25 through 38 forbids charging a needy brother interest on a loan. If a guy's down and out, you don't stick it to him. You, you show him mercy. You relieve his debt. And I think the same generosity shown in Israel should be practiced among brothers and sisters in the family of God. I believe that. Verse 35 says, If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner that he may live with you. Years ago, I worked at a warehouse over in Doraville. And I'll never forget one Friday night. We had just loaded the trucks and we were locking up. We were fixing to leave. And, and we found a drunk hobo laying down on the back deck, right on the dock underneath the, the overhang. And, of course, company rules required us to throw this drunk off the property. But I'll never forget what my boss did. He walked back in the warehouse, and he grabbed about four, five, or six foam pads that we used for packing and some soft packing material. And he went out there, and he made a bed for this drunk. And he and I kind of picked the guy up, and we laid him down on the soft cushions and and he was right there under the overhang where he would be protected if it rained. And I'll never forget what Ralph told me. He turned to me and he said, Sandy, never kick a man when it's down. You never know when he might be you. We need to remember that same thing. Never kick a man when he's down. You never know when that man might be you. Verse 36, take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money at for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. Don't make money off a brother who needs mercy. And it was good to hear that car manufacturers are allowing the 
folks down in the hurricane area, uh, they don't have to pay their car payments for the next three months or so, more power to them. Now if we can just talk to them about some other things. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and a sojourner, he will be with you and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. Technically, a fellow Hebrew who sells himself to relieve his debts was a slave, but you weren't to treat him that way. You were to love him and show him mercy. Treat him as a brother. And then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and shall return to his family. He shall return to the possession of his fathers, for they are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. When God brought his people out of Egypt, he was done with slavery. That was his heart. You shall not rule over him with rigor, but you shall fear your God. And as for your male and female slaves, whom you may have from the nations that are around you, from them you may buy male and female slaves. Moreover, you may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property. And you may take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as a possession. They shall be your permanent slaves. And you might ask, why in the world could a Hebrew slave be redeemed, but a Gentile slavery was permanent. Why would God enact a law like that? Remember, it was actually an act of mercy on the part of God. For these Gentiles, they didn't know anything about God. They worshipped idols. They worshipped false gods. And if they were purchased as a slave and brought into a Hebrew home, they would start to learn about the one true God. They would start to learn about God's mercies and God's truth. And hopefully through their bondage in the Hebrews' home, they would come to a saving knowledge of God. This was why God allowed that. But regarding your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over one another with rigor. You know, a guy could be a slave, but you were supposed to treat him like a brother. Now, if a sojourner or a stranger close to you becomes rich... And one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you or to a member of the stranger's family. After he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him or anyone who is near of kin to him in his family may redeem him or if he is able, he may redeem himself. He could buy his own freedom. Then he shall reckon with him who bought him the price of his release shall be according to the number of years from the year that he was sold to him until the year of Jubilee. It shall be according to the time of a hired servant for him. If there are still many years remaining according to them, he shall repay the price of his redemption from the money with which he was bought. And if there remains but a few years until the year of Jubilee, then he shall reckon with him, and according to his years he shall repay him the price of his redemption." He shall be with him as a yearly hired servant, and he shall not rule with vigor over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed in these years, then he shall be released in the year of Jubilee, he and his children with him. For the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
And I don't know about you, but I like this idea of the year of Jubilee. And if I ever run for president, we're going to implement this today. In Leviticus chapter 26, God tells his people what will happen if they obey the law that he's just given them. And what will happen if they disobey the law that he's just given them. And these blessings and curses are prophetic. And now with the hindsight of history, we can clearly see the reliability of God's promises in these verses. Exactly what God told them came true. You can chart the history of the Jew and you can see it portrayed perfectly in Leviticus chapter 26. Verse 1 begins, You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. In other words, if you obey me, God says, you'll prosper all year long. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put to flight ten thousand. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. What an amazing promise. Five of you will chase a hundred. You'll trounce your enemies. Sounds like what the dogs did to Boise State last night. For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. But next, God tells them what's going to happen if they disobey him. Here's some promises too, verse 14. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments... And if you despise my statutes or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever which shall consume their eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemy shall eat it. Invaders will inhabit the land and eat their crops. And you know, I, I just learned today, you know what was scheduled this past Monday in New Orleans? The Big Gay Pride Day. Big Gay Pride Celebration Day in New Orleans this past Monday. Sounds like God broke it up. I will set my face against you, God says, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. 
In 586 B.C., Judah fell to the Babylonians. And then again in 70 A.D., the Jews were crushed by Rome. Over and over again, God's word came true. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. And it was all because they refused to obey the Lord. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. In other words, your your land will receive no rain. Your ground will remain infertile and fallow. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. God judges sin. And if he judges sin in the Old Testament, I believe he judges sin today. Now, I don't always know how, and I can't read God's mind, and who knows God's purposes. But does God judge sin? Everything in my Bible says that He does. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate. These plagues were God's attempt to steer Israel back to Him. These plagues were plagues of love. God God wanted to put red lights up in front of His people, but the people kept running the lights. They refused to stop at the stop signs. And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you. I'm going to let you know you're aggravating me. I'm going to let you know you're frustrating me. And I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. And I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I have cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven, and they shall bring back your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. It reminds me of the famine in the days of Elisha. When the Syrians had the city surrounded, the city of Samaria, people on the inside were on the verge of starvation. This kind of thing happened over and over in the Old Testament. And after all this, if you do not obey me, and you're thinking, after all this, they still don't obey him? God knew the stubbornness of his people, sad to say. But walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sin. And it gets gruesome right here. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. You see, in ancient times, an invader would surround the city, would put the city under siege. And part of that was cutting off the supply lines into the city. And so rather than fight, and rather than risk bloodshed and losing soldiers, they would really just starve out the city. Oftentimes the city would surrender. In other cases, they would refuse to surrender and they would literally starve to death. And several times, Jerusalem was placed under siege and the people on the inside of the city resorted to even cannibalism. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. 
Notice that their dead bodies will fall on their idols to accentuate the powerlessness of their idols. Obviously, these gods were no gods. They were no help. Their dead bodies are laying on their idols. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. In both 586 B.C. by the Babylonians and 70 A.D. by the Romans, the temple or their sanctuary was destroyed by their enemies. And I will bring the land to desolation, and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw you out I draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. In 722 B.C. and then again in 70 A.D., the Hebrews were scattered to the four corners of the earth. And today, there are many Jews that reside outside of Israel because of these dispersions. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbath when you dwelt in it. And Jeremiah tells us why the Babylonian captivity lasted 70 years. It was one year of bondage for every Sabbath year that they neglected to keep according to these laws in Leviticus chapter 25. That's why it was 70 years. They neglected 490 years of keeping the Sabbath year. And as for those of you who are, who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. They live in fear. And, and they shall flee as though fleeing from a sword. And they shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another as it were before a sword when no one pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. Verse 38. You shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And in the years following Jerusalem's fall in 70 A.D., the Jews were scattered among the nations. And over the last 2,000 years, that's where they have perished, among the nations, just as Leviticus 38 tells us. Only in modern times has Israel been reborn and have the Jews been regathered to their land. And it's hard to read these words here. You shall perish among the nations and not remember the Spanish Inquisition and the Crusades and even the Holocaust. And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands, also in their fathers' iniquities which are with them, they shall waste away. But if they confess their iniquity and in in the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled, and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember, I will remember the land. Do you get the idea that God believes in second chances and third chances and fourth chances? And aren't some of us glad even fifth chances and sixth chances and seventh? Hey, whenever, whenever you humble your heart and admit your guilt and are willing to repent of your sin, God is ready to forgive you and receive you back. 
Moses was given all these blessings and curses. But the covenant that God made with Abraham was unconditional. And because of that covenant, no matter how dire things became, God would never abandon Israel. Well, the land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. In other words, Israel could have picked its destiny. Obey the law and it'll be year-round prosperity. Disobey the law and it's going to be famine and siege, and sadness. Leviticus chapter 27 deals with uh, the practice of redemption. The practice of redemption was a way in which the Hebrews presented offerings to God. A parent might dedicate their child to the Lord. A man might bring an animal to the Lord, or even give his house or field to the Lord. And the Lord seldom took possession of these offerings. God was not into stockpiling animals and houses and fields. So here's what would happen. You would give your house to the Lord. And then, in essence, buy it back. And the money would then go toward the service of God. You redeemed it or bought it back. And you could do this with a child or with a family member or with an animal or with a field. Pretty much anything. As a matter of fact, if anybody wants to give their house to the Lord tonight, we'll be happy to take the title and then we'll sell it back to you. It'll be cool. It'll be great. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, you remember a woman by the name of Hannah gave her son Samuel to the Lord. You remember this story? But she didn't redeem him. Instead, Samuel stayed in the house of the Lord and served next to the high priest Eli. Usually a parent would buy back the child or redeem their child. But in that case, she left him there to be raised by the priest and to serve the Lord. I'll never forget one night Pastor James went home from church and forgot Jamie here at the church. Forgot his daughter. I thought he was giving her as an offering to the Lord. But when he got back home, he discovered that he had made the mistake and came running back for her. And if I'd been thinking, I could have charged him the redemption price. Verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man consecrates by a vow certain persons to the Lord, according to your valuation, if your valuation is of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. And if from five years old up to 20 years old, notice this, if from five years old up to 20 years old, then your valuation for a male shall be 20 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. And notice here the conclusive and the definitive proof that adults are more valuable and important than teenagers. 
Do you notice that? Teenagers, take a bite of humble pie, would you? And if from a month old up to five years old, then your valuation for a male shall be five shekels of silver, and for a female your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. And if from 60 years old and above, if it is a male, then your valuation shall be 15 shekels, and for a female, 10 shekels. But if he is too poor to pay your valuation, then he shall present himself before the priest, and the priest shall set a value for him according to the ability of him who vowed the priest shall value him. And notice the evaluation was always based on the strength to serve. That's what's being valued here. The strength to serve. And thus a man was more than a woman. A woman was more than a teenager. A teenager more than a child. Etc. Etc. Verses 9 through 13 describe the redemption of animals. Verses 14 through 25 deal with the redemption of houses and lands. Verses 26 through 33 mention several items that you really can't dedicate to God and then redeem. In other words, you can't buy back from the Lord what already belongs to Him. And that describes that. And then verse 29 says that a criminal that's under a death sentence can't be dedicated to God all of a sudden in order to escape his execution. He's about to go to the electric chair the next day and he says oh I'm, I'm going to give myself to God you're going to go to meet him alright but God is eliminating the loopholes from the law verse 34 sums up the book of Leviticus these are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai God has taken Israel his people out of Egypt to plant them into a new land the land of Canaan And before they march north to this new land, he has brought them first to a mountain called Sinai, where there he has given them the law. He has taught them how to be his people, how to live and how to worship. And now the nation is ready. And the book of Numbers charts their journey from this mountain called Sinai to the Canaanite border town known as Kadesh Barnea. And that's what we'll pick up next week. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement it brings, for the lessons we learn. Help us this week, Lord, to not just be hearers of your word, but help us be doers. Lord, we love you. We pray for the folks down in the hurricane area. Lord, bring healing and comfort. Bring help help and strength. Lord, be with our friends there, our family there. Go before them, guide them, protect them. And help us, Lord, to turn tragedy into triumph. Lord, you're good at that. We learned that at the cross. And Lord, I pray that you'll turn tragedy into triumph in these needy hour and in the face of this calamity. We pray that we can put our faith-colored glasses on and live our lives pleasing to you, Father. And Lord, we are waiting for the blast of the trumpet for the year of Jubilee to begin. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. And all God's people said.